great. Uh, I'm going to try to come on my webcam here. Um, cool. Got my new Dojo U banner. Well, welcome to uh, Dojo Universe uh, podcast here for this week. And this week we have a special guest with us uh, by the name of Matt Griffin, who uh, I think he's out there. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Do you have a a webcam, Matt, or do you not want to risk it? Oh, I could do that. See what. Uh... Oh, there he is. I think it's. Uh... I see a. I see an image. But it may have frozen. Oh, okay. Hey, everyone. Cool. Well, hopefully that works. Well, um, so, Matt, I am drinking a, uh, a soy latte this morning. Do you have anything on the go? Just water. I have a lovely cup of water. I've had enough coffee for the morning so far. Great. I think I'm going to turn your camera off, Matt, because it seems to be delaying the audio. And I've got a soy latte. Cool. All right. Uh, I think we'll try. I think we'll do. Yeah, I know I'm there. So uh, anyway, uh, we invited Matt on today because uh, we're starting what I think is going to be a really cool, uh, a really cool class series at Dojo U on Tuesday, um, and the class is going to be at 8:30 p.m. But it's sort of it's going to talk about the physics and psychoacoustics of sound, and I think that uh, you know in you know, I think that obviously this is something that concerns pipers um, in a big way. I mean, mainly because, yes, we're musicians, but we also, uh, the bagpipes, at least in order to play bagpipes well, you have to have a really good grasp of certain important concepts like tuning, like harmonics, um, and, um, you know, just sort of generally what makes sound uh, sound good So for sort of a redundant sentence. So I don't know, Matt, what do you... Uh, can you maybe comment on some of that? <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's going to be a four-week four-week course, and we're going to sort of split it in two parts. Uh, there's going to be the first two weeks talking about sort of physics and acoustics. Uh, so that's sort of how sound works, and we're going to go right back to the sort of basics, like sound is a wave, and we're going to talk about how the ear works, which of course is very important for bag. Talk about how and why well, which is a big concern for. And the second. Hey Matt, your mic isn't coming through right. Something's not. Uh, something's not working very well there. Is it not there at all, or is it too? Uh, it tends to fade into. Uh, it tends to fade off as you talk for a while. That may be me being uh, undisciplined with my microphone. Yeah, cool. I would say keep it up nice and nice and close there, and you can maybe okay. even maybe even boosting the levels would help. But uh, anyway, okay. so so carry on with what you were saying there. So yeah, again, uh, it'll be uh, split in two: two weeks on acoustics and two weeks on psychoacoustics. And in a in a really sort of hand wavy nutshell. Psychoacoustics will sort of explain um, 
not how things work in a physical sense, but sort of how we interpret and why we like certain things. Uh, so it'll give us a chance to talk about some uh, some sort of fun parts of audio, uh, like why it's difficult to hear your headphones when you're on the subway, uh, and there will even be a few party tricks uh, that will amaze and delight your friends, and sort of why we've been trained to why we've been trained to and why it makes sense that certain parts of western music appeal to us uh so we'll look at different tuning systems and sort of how a bagpipe is different than a piano uh so that goes back to the tuning of things and then we'll look at some different tuning systems from around the world uh and how and why they developed the way they did and also some real weirdos in the 20th century developing their own sort of uh, intuitive and alternative tuning systems. So we're going to cover a lot of stuff, and I'm going to do my best to uh, keep bringing it back to the bagpipe world, because that is obviously a, a, the, the one thing that ties all of us, except me, sort of, together. Um, but it should be a lot of fun. I'm just uh, putting the finishing touches on the notes uh, and was doing that pretty late last night, so it's it's all pretty fresh in my head right now. Cool. I mean, uh, I, I'm extremely pumped about it, um, and you know, for me, it's like I'm a little bit I'm a little bit out of you know out of touch with my physics lately, and uh, you know maybe you could help me with this. So, how does sound actually work then? Like maybe if can you give us a little preview without frying our brains? <laughs> What do you mean specifically? Just because that's the whole thing, that'll that'll ruin the whole four weeks. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Well, I guess I guess what I mean is, all right. So I have these ears, and mm -hmm. I have I have an eardrum, and I think what's going on, and I'm playing dumb a little bit because I actually know a little bit about what's going on. But uh, somehow, you know, somehow when I play my bagpipes or when I say something with my voice. It's able to transmit itself through the air, and uh, other people are at, are able to hear me. So, like, you know, how, what is the basic, you know, what is the basic sure. sort of thing that's going on there? So, I mean, we hear the the word sound wave a lot. So we sort of intuitively think of sound as a wave, uh, in the same way that we think of light as a wave. But the interesting thing is that sound and light waves work totally differently. Um, we think of uh, sort of the idea of like a sine wave that we would see on a screen or like a wave that we'd see on the ocean, like the sort of thing going up and down. But in fact, sound is a pressure wave. So instead of going up and down, it's sort of going back and forth. And it's really just the uh, compression and depression of air when something happens. So when I use my voice or when I play the bagpipes or when I kick a wall, uh, that's causing an actual compression of air. And it happens at a certain rate. Uh, and that's sort of what moves the air, it moves the waves through the air. Then they exactly hit our eardrums. And I think all of us, uh, some of us are using microphones and some of us are using speakers. And those are really similar to how eardrums work. Uh, the pressure of the air will cause something to vibrate. In the case of our ears, it's the eardrum. In the case of the microphone, there is actually a little drum 
uh, or a little membrane that can sort of interpret these compressions and depressions in air pressure. Uh, it happens at a certain rate that gives us frequency, and then it gets much more complicated when we start talking about things like timbre and, for example, why a bagpipe sounds different than a clarinet. So that's the that's the sort of intro, but uh, it will start frying brains if we sort of quickly try to go through why a bagpipe sounds different than a clarinet. Oh, right. I'll, I'll need I'll need pictures for that. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So I mean, tell me if this um, tell me if this analogy is is a good one. You know, like I sort of picture. Um, I sort of picture like let's let's say I'm gonna hit a a snare drum, and then uh, and then you're standing ten feet away from me, and you're gonna hear me hit that snare drum, right? Um, right. And what's gonna happen is I hit the snare drum, and that's gonna cause like a big disturbance in the air, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like especially immediately where the drumstick is hitting the drum, and so what sort of happens there is. It's kind of like you set up some dominoes and they fall. So uh, it's kind of like when I hit the drum, it's like hitting that first domino. And then, you know, and rather than dominoes here, though, we're actually talking about molecules of air, right? So right. when I hit the drum, the first molecule of air bumps into the next one, which bumps into the next one, which bumps into the next one, which eventually makes it uh, to your ears, which is why, you know, which is why sound takes a while. Uh, you know, it takes way longer than light takes to reach you, right? So there's this, the speed of sound. So that happens at a very specific rate. But it's also why, as you go further and further away, the sound becomes softer and softer. It's because as the molecules bump into each other, um, there's there's a little bit of energy taken away each time. Like, do you think that's a fair a fair sort of description? Oh, that's absolutely of a fair analogy. Yeah. yeah. And actually, Meanwhile, the I mean, thing... Uh, yeah, I was just going to add on to that. Like uh, w when I was a kid, we used to like shout at each other under the water. And uh, <laughs> what's what's really impressive, what's really impressive in the water is that the sound actually will travel a lot farther, uh, will travel a lot farther without losing that volume because water is a much more densely packed uh, grouping of molecules than air is. Um, but on but on the other hand, uh, it's impossible to interpret it. Because we're not used to, you know, we're not used to hearing sounds as they sort of bounce through that medium as opposed to the the sort of normal air. You know, right. I always found kind of interesting. The other is thing that is sort of similar but also dissimilar from light and sound. Uh, light will sort of travel at the same speed through anything, uh, which is not entirely true, but it's more or less true. It's true enough for what we're talking about right now. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of, a, it's a number represented by letter C, like in the famous equation E equals MC squared. Light just has one speed, and it always goes at a certain speed. You can never go faster than it, uh, and it's just a constant. Sound doesn't work that way at all. Uh, just like with the underwater analogy, it depends what sound is traveling through that defines its speed. And in fact, the more densely packed the molecules are, the faster sound travels. Uh, so for example, uh, if you are on train tracks or on a subway track, uh, you will hear the sound coming through the metal rails faster than you'll hear the sound coming through the air, uh, which is why it always seems to be coming up from the bottom when you're standing on, standing near any sort of metal tracks. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It's also why the scene from Stand By Me was, uh, that's why they kept leaning down to listen to the train tracks, is because they knew that trick. You know, it didn't do them much good. <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't know if I've ever seen that movie. Oh, really? Mm. Like, you, you sort of have to reserve your movie watching time for, like, the more, you know, avant-garde type things anyway. Nah, I, I like superhero movies. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, yeah, just um, in response to Bruce, yeah, we, we decided to kill the video today because there was a little bit of disturbance in the connection when we tried to use it. Um, just because we're trying to, because we're connecting with Matt from, from Canada and I, I, I think they only have dial-up up there. So um, that's basically why. That's true. Why it is, but uh, uh, yeah, plus, you know, I don't know. I'm not particularly good to look at. So anyway, the other thing too, I guess the last thing I would add here is that um, I always get kind of like mad at space movies when they pan out and they show the spaceship floating through outer space with like this huge rumbling sound of the engines because, <laughs> you know, because space has no air really. Or if, you know, there are molecules there, but they're, they're very, very few and far between. So you would not actually be able to hear anything floating around in outer space. And it's for that same sort of, it's based on that same principle. So there's nothing for sound to bounce, um, bounce around through. And so you would not really actually hear anything. That's true. Sound makes, sound doesn't exist in a vacuum uh, and light does. So that's yet another difference between the two. Light can go right through space, no problem. Sound, once there's nothing to bump into, that's pretty much game over for your snare drum. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit more about um, uh, a little bit more about microphones because uh, in, in eardrums, like one of the things that I was actually showing on a class uh, a week or so ago is how um, how digital audio actually works. At least a very a very loose you know a very loose um, you know sort of explanation and description is uh, so basically the microphone is sensing what pressure, uh, you know, uh, what sort of pressures are going on, and they're able to record that uh, into uh, the computer in digital form. I mean, do you want to maybe briefly go into how that works? Sure, this may be exactly the same thing that you explained, but I'll do it all the same. Um, yeah, the membrane on a microphone is the same or analogous to the membrane on our ear. And also, there's not really a difference between a microphone and a speaker, uh, in that they function exactly the same, except uh, a microphone is sort of built to receive sound better. But there's no reason you couldn't use a speaker as a microphone, because all you need to either transmit or record sound is some membrane and then something to turn it from acoustic to digital which is sort of a magnet, basically. So you need a membrane and a magnet, and you can make both a speaker and a microphone. Uh, so the membrane will bounce back and forth in the air as the, you know, as sound happens. So it's reacting to the pressure changes in the air, and it's happening really, really, really quickly, um, which is why we you know, can't really see microphones or speakers work except when you're listening to Skrillex and it's this intense bass sound. Because, uh, you know, most of the time, like when I'm speaking, 
and your speaker is presenting my voice to you, that speaker is moving back and forth at three or 400 times a second. That's the frequency of my voice. Uh, so it's tough to see that. Uh, as humans, we can hear stuff down to about 20 hertz or 20 movements per second. Uh, so sometimes we can actually see that on a speaker. So we can see the speakers moving. Uh, but when it's really high, it's, it's pretty much impossible. Uh, so you have the speaker that moves, and then you have an electromagnet, which uh, is typically attached to the membrane. Again, I wish there were, I, I could just draw a little something for you, but I can't. Uh, so it's going back and forth. Actually, you can if you want to, actually. Like we could I can't? No, I'll forget oh. it. It's, I'm almost on the exponent. Oh. You could do like a little whiteboard, and then you, you got a pencil up there if you want to use it. Okay. So we've got, this is our membrane. This is our speaker. And then underneath that, you have an electromagnet. And an electromagnet is basically a piece of metal wrapped in a coil like this. That's my coil. This is my membrane. So when sound comes through the air, that's an arrow, and hits the speaker, the electromagnet goes up and down. And this can be interpreted digitally. So it's this part right here that takes the acoustic and turns it into digital. And as soon as we have something digital, then we have the ability to do stuff like save it in a computer, send it across the internet, and transmit it through someone else's speakers. And really the only difference between a microphone and a speaker, or a receptor and a transmitter, is the fact that this is reversed. So inside your computer, you're getting that same signal, that same series of ups and downs at a certain frequency, and it's going back through an electromagnet and then transmitted through a speaker. Um, and then, so that's how digital works. The ear is a little bit more complicated, uh, and we'll talk about that, obviously, in the first week. Um, but in a nutshell, the only difference between the ear and a speaker is instead of this electromagnet, we have uh, 20,000 little tiny hairs inside our ear that react to sound. Yeah, that's wild. But that's sort of, but again, it's it's sort of like an analogous, right? In that, you know, the hairs are what help us sense which frequencies, you know, um, are have been transmitted, and so that's how we know how to interpret them. Right. Exactly. Cool. Um, well, uh, folks out there, we have great attendance today. Thank you all for coming. Um, are I've there never any seen questions? This Firefly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was wondering if you could comment on it, but you, man, you, you is that a, uh, is that a Joss Whedon movie? Yes, it is. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I have a question for Matt. Um, will Will this class give us the tools to be able to uh, explain to the person that comes up to us and goes, "Oh, you play bagpipes? I don't really like the sound of bagpipes." Will we be able to explain to them why they should like them? <laughs> or what it is that they don't like. You will definitely be able to explain why you'll, you can make them explain why they don't uh, or convince them that they do because it will definitely spend a lot of time talking about timbre and that's the sort of complicated, you know, when we were talking about waves, this is sort of, this is my sine wave as sort of a beginning of what sound looks like. But in reality, they're way more complicated, and they that 
complexity is what makes different instruments and different things sound different. So bagpipes have a really unique timbre, and we'll talk about what gives them that. And of course, I mean, it's pretty, on a surface level, it's really intuitive, right? It's the shape of the instrument, it's the materials of it, it's the fact that it's coming out of uh, a series of pipes as opposed to uh, something that's shaped like a timpani, uh, it's the fact that it's not made of the same material as a clarinet, but we will uh, talk about these things. And yeah, when someone says, I do or don't like the bagpipes, uh, you, you really come across people who don't, that's real odd to me. Um, but yeah. It's, it's usually when they've heard somebody that isn't as, as uh, accomplished uh, <laughs> that they... Usually, but not always. Um, I've definitely come up people across people that uh, even after listening to good pipe music decide, yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> yeah. That's and hopefully... No, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say... No, I forget. Never mind. I don't know what I was going to say. You, you go ahead, Andrew. Um, I was going to say... Well, first of all, I wanted to encourage folks to ask questions... Uh, if if you have anything at all on your mind, because that's what's going to, you know, keep this conversation uh, from being like way too geeky. So uh, you know, <laughs> ask any ask any questions. Uh, Tambers like comparing cigarettes to cigars. She likes cigars. <laughs> all right, we're I think we're on the we're on the. I mean, this is kind of. Uh, you know, it seems off topic, but it's probably strangely related. All right, here's my question to keep things going. So a lot of times, Matt, we're asked to, as teachers of bagpipes, we're asked by students, you know, how do I tune, you know, how do I tune my bagpipes if I don't, you know, like I don't have a good quote unquote ear, like what am I even listening for when I'm trying to get something into tune, you know, or you know, is there any sort of uh, enlightenment you could offer bagpipers from a sort of theoretical point of view that might help us understand better what tuning is all about? Well, I'm not saying I can make people better tuners, but in the same way that uh, it'll be easier to explain why or figure out what it is about bagpipes that people are attracted to or not, Hopefully, I'll be able to give some insight into why tuning works, uh, which maybe will make you a better tuner. Uh, because, you know, when we're learning to tune an instrument, and any instrument really, uh, I play more uh, string based instruments, so it's similar to learn learning how to tune a guitar or a violin or, or anything like that. You learn the tricks, right? You learn these rules and you just sort of follow the rules. And maybe you don't question the rules uh, or understand why they work. But there is sort of, there's, there's physics, there's math behind it. So I promise there won't be complicated, any, any complicated physics or math in, in any of this. Um, but it's, I, for me, it really helps to know why things work. To know why, for example, we hear that beating when we're tuning uh, when we're tuning the bagpipes, for example. And that makes sense, right? Everyone will know what I'm talking about when I say listening for beating. Yeah. Uh, hopefully. I mean, it's 
it's a you know or like that sort of wobbling phenomenon that you experience when something's not quite in tune yeah yeah exactly so that beating or wobbling phenomenon that's how you tune but what we will be talking about is sort of why that works as far as tuning goes gotcha um all right so here's a question Will you be talking in the course about differences between electronic and acoustic instruments? Uh, in other words, is there a different effect when you hear like uh, you know rock band like electric guitars and stuff versus bagpipes or violins or something like that? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, that question. That will that we'll talk about a lot of electronic stuff. Um, in relation to acoustic stuff. And um, I mean, I don't want to say yes or no right now. Maybe the answer to that question at this point is sort of. Um, But we'll talk again about what it is that will make that difference. Uh, And certainly because that'll come down to psychoacoustics, I think, a lot. Uh, And again, that's the second half where we'll be talking about why we like the things we do. And we'll be talking, hopefully we'll have a pretty good discussion about that very question. You know, if even if it's acoustically the same to be listening from a speaker as opposed to a person, uh, what does that do to us? And is there something about that presence of a person that makes us listen differently and maybe feel differently? But I mean, a little bit of a spoiler, it doesn't actually sound the same coming from a speaker uh, rel- or versus coming from a person playing. Uh, you know, just because from a speaker, you know, you're pointing the speaker in one direction, whereas with a bagpipe, uh, when you play it, the sound goes in all directions. So in many ways, you have a more complicated sound when you're listening to a person on a stage versus a speaker on a stage. Right. That makes definite sense to me. I mean, you know, and what's interesting is, I mean, unless you're getting into, you know, unless you get into actual computer-generated sounds like might come from a MIDI keyboard or something, I think it's also not entirely fair to say that an electric guitar is actually an electronic instrument because it's still, you know, it's still picking up from that, you know, very acoustic action or, you know, I guess for lack of better words, you know, it's still picking up on on what you're doing to the string itself. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there are different, I think we'll also talk about the fact that it's not as simple as acoustic versus electronic, because there are many levels. I mean, bagpipes are one of the most purely acoustic instruments because they're loud enough that a lot of the time, but obviously not all of the time, they don't need any amplification. But a guitar usually does. A flute almost always needs to be mic'd if a lot of people are going to hear it. So you always have this sort of this gradation between purely acoustic and then again, as Andrew was saying, something that was actually made digitally uh, and like made inside a computer and then presented through speakers. So there's a lot of different there's a lot of rich stuff for us to be talking about when we get into that part of it. Right. Um, Okay, we have a couple of questions pouring in here. Uh, guess you're six. Why should the bag material affect the tone, assuming the bag is tight and the blower is steady? Uh, some pipe majors want pipers to use the same bag. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And I guess, um, you know, we could talk about this maybe a little bit later. 
discussed the other six as well. But uh, maybe Matt can shed some light. I mean, it's to a certain extent, it's a big mystery. But uh, Piper's experienced a phenomenon where different bag materials um, affect the quality of the tone or, or the characteristics of the tone that we get out of the instrument. I mean, would you have any speculations as to why that might be the case? Um, old wives' tales? I mean, I, I no, just kidding. Not, I'm just kidding. It's definitely not an old wives' tale uh, in my experience. Because no, I don't. I don't actually think it would be. That is the, but it strikes me that that's that sort of extremely high level of playing, where, you know, you're comparing, amongst world class players, every little minute thing does have a slight effect. Right. I mean, Even I though think it might be, I mean, as a you're you're a trombone player also. I mean, I think it might have to do with an embouchure sort of situation as well, where like the shape the shape and characteristic of of the thing that's putting the air through the instrument, right, can have an effect on the tonal output. You know, uh, that's that's sort of my theory as to why there would be a difference. See, yeah. I, I don't know, Andrew, because there's plenty of, of, of hide bags that are made exactly the same shape and size, and yet uh, the difference between uh, a Ganaway and a Sheep um, just different types of leather does have a significant impact on on the sound. But would wouldn't it have to do with like the the flexibility, maybe the flexibility of the material or something like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I always kind of speculated that it was the the ability of the drone itself to vibrate within the within the material, but. That's yeah. that could be true because maybe this is part of it. Each material will have a different sort of humidity or be able to retain moisture in a unique way, and the moisture that's created inside the bag will totally affect the sound. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably part of it too. But let's uh, let's talk about that perhaps at a later date, and we certainly have a lot of classes that talk about that at WJU. Question though. Yeah, definitely. All right, Siri says different different pipes have different tunes. She might actually mean tone to them. We hope that our gear will get us to sound, but maybe this will help to be more aware of what uh, is in the sound that we like so that we can produce it. Yes, and I think that's definitely the case. That's a big, so, big part of it, for sure. Right, exactly. And I think the better, for me, it's like I, once I developed an understanding of, of harmonics and how sound is actually how sound and timbre is actually interpreted, right? I think that played a big role on, you know, um, helping to define what I was looking for in my own bagpipe sounds. Okay, so if I manipulate my reeds this way, or if I choose this set of drone reeds versus another set of drone reeds, right? It has certain, it, you know, for me, it's more of a, you know, I can hear a, a greater richness and overall tonal spectrum than I would if I, if I did this, that, and the other thing. So I think this class will definitely help us sort of define what sort of sounds that we that we uh, like and which ones are maybe you know that we're less interested in. Yeah, sure, and and it also will give us a new way or maybe a more sophisticated way to talk about certain things. So if you were say to go buy a new set of drone reads uh, or search them out, you'll know you'll have a better idea of what you're looking for and have more language to say I'm interested in. 
a sound that has you know more low end or has this certain type of richness um, and people will know what you're talking about and it'll you'll be able to cultivate a unique sound or a sound that you're looking for specifically cool uh, a couple of yeah I think a couple of more questions I mean Donald's going back to tuning uh, you, do you think that you'll be able to shed any light you know for those who um, don't hear the tuning that well you know and you know and maybe help get them off from the need to use an electric tuner all the time to try to get their pipes in tune uh yes the short answer to that is yes or i i can't guarantee anything uh but it, it yes i think so it again it comes back to that knowing how things work and it should help with the making things work i know i got better at tuning and i know a lot of folks who who have gotten better at tuning uh, when they sort of have the language and therefore sort of know what to listen for to help them tune. Yeah, um, Steve, I like Stephen's question here. What is the optimum frequency we should be tuning at? Um, you know, their band is at 475. What are the pros and cons to going higher or lower? We actually talked about this a little bit in your last class, as I recall, Matt. Like, um, 475? Yeah, that would mean instead of oh. A being at 440, it's at 475. That's pretty high. Uh, I mean, I, mean I have no high. idea. That's just, I don't know if that's high for bagpipes, but that's a pretty high A. Yeah, I think that's about that's about the norm uh, for bagpipes. I mean, uh, and there's an effect that happens, I guess you could say, psychoacoustically, where the higher something is in pitch, the more pleasant it seems to us. Um, I don't know, Matt. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I will say this: the reason that we don't tune at 440 anymore is because of violin players. We can blame it all on them, because uh, this will we'll talk about this more when we talk about masking. Um, but if you play a higher pitch, it's slightly easier to hear over a slightly lower pitch. So violin players in an orchestra, because they're playing in a group of like 20 to 40 violin players, would play their notes ever so slightly sharp so they could be heard, so they could hear themselves, so they knew what they were playing. Because, you know, the goal of a violin ensemble is to really blend and do one thing, but you still want to be able to hear yourself. So over the last 200 years, violin players just started tuning higher and higher and higher. And it, it wasn't dramatic. We're talking about like one or two hertz every generation but you know over a couple hundred years that means that now we're tuning at 475 as opposed to 440. Um, and yeah we'll again talk about why we can hear things uh, in the course but that's the sort of one anecdote uh, and presumably bagpipes which are sort of going through the same ensemble effect as violins will do the exact same thing play just ever slow ever so slightly above someone else so they can hear. Again, it won't sound out of tune, but the player themselves will be able to hear it. Right, I mean, ever so slightly out of tune means that the really high-end harmonics are going to be sort of beating uh, loudly against other high-end harmonics, which right. causes it to sort of stick out, uh, which is uh, which will make more sense, I think, after a couple... Um, you know, a couple classes. Steven says some grade one bands play at 482, like um, 
Uh, I'm not sure what FWIW means, but it's for referring to field. Uh, yeah, for what it's worth. There you go. See, I'm losing it. I'm. I think I'm getting old. Uh, <laughs> yes, some grade one bands, and and this year there will be a, a few grade one bands that play at 483, and next year there will be a few that play at 484, and it all has to do with uh, the fact that, and it's a definite, it's definitely true, having experienced it myself many times, a slightly higher pitch. Right, if if two bagpipes were exactly equal, except for one guy was playing one cycle higher, uh, you would prefer uh, the one cycle higher. Um, and we don't have a governed pitch like uh, Western uh, like Western musicians do, where you know at some point somebody said, "All right, A is going to be 440, and that's the way it is," because um, it was just getting to be too out of control, and it was getting too difficult for you know various people to to be able to play together um, and then yep carl says if it's cold and rainy out then the pitch will go down a little bit just because of the basic environment but you yeah. will still find that in the cold a band that succeeds to get uh, succeeds in getting a slightly higher pitch than anyone else is going to be at an advantage provided that they're tuned up as well and then guest viewer four says in the real world which um you know it's kind of like it begs some you philosophical questions. The irony of that is 440, I mean, if we talk about real as in humans around other humans, uh, 440 is not really A anymore because I don't think there's an orchestra in the world that tunes to 440 um, because oboe is the instrument you tune to. And again, over this, over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, it's gone up not to 475, but to like 442, 443, 444. Um, it's really the digital world where we have more respect for A440. Uh, for those uh, who make synthetic sounds uh, on a computer, that's sort of where people will continue to use 440 as A. Um, but really in the digital world, you're more concerned with less notes, but sort of metric numbers, so we tend to be a thousand hertz is a very specific frequency. Yeah. That's sort of what you would sort of tune to for what it's worth. Right, yeah. And uh, it's not to say one frequency is better than the, the other either. I mean, it's all just relative. So no, if you not go to at a all. concert, if you go to a concert and everyone's playing at 440, then uh, that's going to sound great to you until some guy comes in playing 441 and that and that sound will have a particular appeal to you probably without you even noticing why right or or something like that or or what have you yeah um, so that's all and kind just, of interesting yeah the, just as the other the the other guest viewer for um yeah it's it's just that in the digital world we actually see the numbers in front of us so if you're looking at a computer screen and you're making uh, making a sound, making a sine wave, you sort of have to plug in the number you want. So it's just easier to remember 440, which is why it tends to be a standard that sticks. Yeah, it's an easy again, number to The read whole thing is, it's all pretty arbitrary. There is absolutely no reason why 440 is better or worse than 475. Um, and we'll talk about the history of that also why 440 was a thing, why it's not necessarily mathematically correct anyways. Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, like there are anomalies that occur, you know, as we go into, you know, and that's where temperament comes in. Am I wrong in the way? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, 440 is not only arbitrary, but wrong. Yeah. Let's segue to this. And I know you, I know this is difficult to do without a lot of backstory, but we, the bagpipers play in a very interesting scale. And one of the things that goes on is that certain notes of our scale sound great when I play with a piano or a guitar, but other notes of my scale don't sound very good. And it's because the bagpipe scale is actually constructed sort of from a physics point of view much differently than other instruments. I mean, can you talk about temperament without frying our brains too badly? I'll, I'll throw the words out there, but not explain them. How about that? Okay. <laughs> or explain them a little. Um, or not get into the math. Bagpipes use what's called Pythagorean tuning or Pythagorean temperament. Uh, and we, even those of us who are far removed from high school, probably remember the name Pythagoras um, because of his equation a squared plus b squared equals c squared, uh, which has to do with triangles. It's all math, it's all nerdy, um, whatever. Uh, but basically, it means that bagpipes are tuned using the actual math, which is to say uh, there's a mathematical ratio between all the notes. For example, an octave has twice the frequency of the octave below it. So, for example, if you are playing a 440 and want to play the A above it, that will be a 880. And every other relationship, every other musical relationship has a ratio. So, for example, again, there's two to one in octaves. And then in a perfect fifth, the ratio from the tonic is three to two. And these relationships get more and more complicated when we're talking about major sevenths and minor sixths, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and bagpipes use this. So they actually use these ratios to define what notes they, or what the relationships are between notes. That's all well and good if you're playing in one key. But as was discovered 400-ish years ago, it didn't work on the harpsichord. Because one key would sound great, but the others would sound uh, slightly more and more out of tune the further you went away from C major, which was the home key. So they came up with a system that made the math way more complicated, but made all the keys pretty much in tune. None of them are perfect, but none of them are that bad. Whereas with bagpipes, one of them is perfect, uh, but the further you move away from that key, they get more and more imperfect. So there's Pythagorean temperament versus equal temperament. Uh, so Pianos and most instruments that are fretted use equal temperaments. String instruments like violins, violas, and slide instruments like trombones uh, don't use any of them because they use sort of, you can tune it, you can tune every note. So violins and trombones can play along with bagpipes wonderfully, pianos less so. Right. So it's just basically, I mean, bagpipes are fortunate that we only play in one key because it allows us to tr to strive for these perfect, simple ratios 
between uh, two notes that make it sound really pure. And, um, and I would go so far as to say pipes, when they're played well, sound so cool is because we're not actually used to hearing these, these perfect intervals between notes. And the reason is because, you know, um, instruments that have the ability to play in, in um, a variety of different keys, right, like C, D major, uh, you know, B flat major, stuff like that, right? Um, instruments that are playing in these different keys have, have to have slightly adjusted notes in order for those keys to sound good. Right, so I think, am I right about that, Matt, yeah, or did absolutely. I screw it up? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're right, and then and again, that's. Yeah, so I agree that that's one of the reasons. Okay, you go first. I don't know. I was just saying, you know, pianos and guitars are supposed to be, or are are sort of built to be extremely versatile, and so therefore, you know, they are, uh, they they use the equal temperament system, uh, because they're made to sort of play in a variety of keys, um, and the bagpipes are just one. So we were able to sort of get around that problem. And then what's cool, what the reason that the violin, otherwise known as the fiddle, actually works pretty well when playing with bagpipes is because um, they don't have frets. So where their finger is on the string can make those very slight adjustments to play in either system. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and trombone. I'm a trombone player, so I do want to give us a shout out. We sound great with bagpipes. Exactly, yeah. Um, and it's because, I mean, you, ha you have to sort of use your ears to pick the right pitch anyway. So you have that sort of constant tuning thing going on. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and then guess your six. Each note on the pipe scale must be in tune with the drones, meaning no beats at all. So the pipe scale is made to do this when properly tuned. That's exactly right. So um, And so that, that is using a sort of exact... Pythagorean mathematical temperament, uh, which means that yeah, all the notes are eventually tuned to be perfectly, uh, you know, to be perfectly in tune against the drone, at least as perfectly as that ratio allows. Yeah. Yeah, and the ratio, if it works, that's why it's so impressive, but also difficult because to have a bagpipe ensemble because you're playing. You know, you're playing a dangerous game. You guys have the ability to be perfect, whereas no other instrument does. Very few other instruments do, uh, to be perfectly in tune. Yeah, uh, and then Jonathan is saying, really, even the note D. Yes, D and low G, because they're the clo they're really close interval to low A, they sound the most dissonant of, of the ratios, but theoretically, uh, the ratio would still be uh, perfect. I don't. I don't remember. Do you remember what it is, Matt? Like, what's the ratio of a, of a. Um, a B to an A, know, I think uh, is. Of a second. I think it's. Um, no, I don't know. I don't remember. I think uh, the, yeah, the I, B I, below I, it is something like eleven to twelve. So it's a, it's a very it's way more complicated a ratio than a perfect fifth or something. So it's it's. So it is perfect. actually like. Yeah, and, and, and the, the reason you hear beating. Sorry, I was just going to say the idea of dissonance is that, uh, you know, the dissonance is not that it's in or out of tune. It ha dissonance has to do with the degree of complexity of the ratio that you're dealing with, right? So the B, the B and the G are going to be the most 
uh, dissonance relative to the low A. And as we get further from the low A, the degree of dissonance will be less and less. Yeah. The thing with B versus, like, if you have a B and an A playing at the same time, um, I, I can explain this part quickly, because you might hear beating, or you might be able to interpret the beating. Whenever you have two notes played simultaneously, you've got an A drone and a B playing, the difference between those frequencies is something like 20 hertz. So you are going to hear the difference, and that's what makes harmonies, but that's also what makes these beating sounds. Now, when you hear, say, two A's together, let's say A440 and A880, you are going to hear the beating, but you're going to hear the beating as 440 beats a minute. So that's what's going to make the harmony, which is barely harmony because it's an octave. But if you have two notes that are close together, uh, let's say you're tuning and you've got one cycle above, you're going to hear a beat at one cycle a minute. And the further you get away from that drone, the more cycles a minute there is going to be. Now, when you get above roughly 20 hertz, or 20 cycles per second, our ear can't interpret that as beating. It starts to interpret it as harmony, or a new note. So if you're playing two notes that are very close together, like A and B, you're actually walking that line between being able to hear it as beats and hearing it as harmonies. So depending on your ear, you might actually interpret that as beats. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it, it makes oh, perfect good. sense to me, but I, oh, I got mean, it. I Thanks. There's, yeah. I know that's, that was the quick and dirty way of explaining it. So, Matt, does that mean that I have to have a human ear to hear harmony? No. Animals can hear harmony. Is that the question? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess the question would yeah. be like, do different organisms, you know, are, are different organisms able to, you know, process the beating at, at equal or lower rates? You know, it's, uh, I don't know if anyone really knows that. But, uh, that's a really interesting know, question. Really we know that, we know that most animals hear or have ears that work the same as ours because we've seen the ears. Uh, but we have no way of knowing, unless they tell us, what that what that point is where they stop hearing beating and start hearing harmony. Which is I've never thought about that, but that's a pretty interesting that's a pretty interesting thought. Right, and it's also interesting too. I mean, there must be deviations among humans as well. So so twenty yeah, hertz is, is the average. Twenty hertz is the average, but there must be. There, there must be, um, you know, variations there, which would suggest that, um, which would suggest that the way uh, we hear harmony from person to, to per uh, sorry, from person to person does actually vary. It's the same, um, it's the same as how we interpret frequencies of light. It's like when I see the color orange, there's no way of knowing whether or not someone else is seeing that exact same, you know, frequency and combination of frequencies you know so it's all very like it's all very deep <laughs> yeah that's true and some people and claim to i mean uh, some people just sort of on a random on a random note some people claim to see colors when they experience certain harmonic combinations or uh, or keys or, you know different key signatures synesthesia yeah 
that's the that the phenomenon is called synesthesia, and that is that means that one sense triggers another sense. So smell can trigger taste, or sight can trigger uh, sound, or touch can trigger colors, or or anything like that. And that's all very both speculative and complicated. Um, some people may just be pulling your leg. It's hard to prove that someone who claims to be synesthetic is. Uh, but you know, hear enough cases of it that it's probably true, and it probably has to do with extra connections in the brain. I definitely don't have that connection in the brain, if any, really. You know, <laughs> I've been accused of maybe being slightly brainless. So um, I think that's probably Carl's over there laughing at me. Um, so yeah, that, that's all. It's all very cool. What other? Um, we we've got a couple minutes left. I wonder if there are any maybe final questions. Yeah, who's looking forward to this class? I know I am. Am I allowed to be looking forward to it? Because I am. Yes. Great. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, it'll be it's good. Um, it'll be good to get back into some exciting premium content here after the holidays and after Kansas City. So. Uh, so it's going to uh, be yeah. a lot of fun, and and I do want to assure people that it's not. It's not going to be – I know that physics and psychoacoustics makes it sound like it's going to be a really complicated course that will leave you brain dead at 9.30 on Tuesday. But um, I I would like it to be a little bit more like this, you know, asking questions. There's there's a lot of stuff that I would like to or could cover, but I want it to be pretty free-flowing um, because there are lots of questions that you as a group probably have about bagpipes that – you know, I I won't be able to predict, and so I'd like to get a lot of those, and it will be a lot of it'll be sort of combined between sort of here's how things work, and then here are fun stories about how things work. Uh, again, and uh, there will be at least one or two party tricks. Cool. <laughs> party tricks are good. Well, what do you say we uh, we wrap it up there? I mean, uh, if there are no other questions. Um, I think that's a great place to stop, and yeah, I'm looking forward to to doing this class. It should be good. It does. Um, it so it starts Tuesday night, so six days from now, and they they're gonna run at 8:30 p.m. and it's gonna happen for four weeks. And uh, and the first topic is just about learning about how sound works a little bit more. So we talked about how sound is a wave. Right? Yeah. So I guess now we'll be talking about that. And then so we'll go from there. Yeah, I'll draw some pictures. We'll listen to a few things. I think we're also going to test our hearing, so we'll be able to find out how deaf all of us are. What? Hilarious. See what I did, see what I did there? Very funny. Man, I'm pretty, I'm a clever guy. Brainless, <laughs> but clever. And you're called brain dead. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Well, let's uh, let's get this show on the road here, or off the road, or whatever they say. Well, thanks <laughs> for letting me uh, thanks for letting me crash the party. I look forward to seeing everyone on Tuesday night, or hearing or reading everyone on Tuesday night. Sounds good. All right, we will see everybody later. Bye.